0: Greetings, this is Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher of The New Criterion. It's my pleasure to introduce you to the November 2021 issue of the magazine, the third issue in our 40th anniversary year. It's a year for celebration, although, to be frank, uh, this is a somewhat bittersweet moment because among the many excellent pieces we have on offer for you in November including Conrad Black's Circle Lecture, which he delivered by video to our readers in September. We also have what is going to be, alas, the last essay by Angelo Codovia. It's the third essay in our series, our year-long series, on Western civilization at the crossroads. But just as we were going to press, Angelo died in a car accident, and I would like to Uh, take this moment to remember Angelo and offer him peace. His essay, On the Spectre of China, is really something you will not want to miss. We're very proud to have it and we'll miss Angelo, as will his many friends. Now for our notes and comments. The first is called Columbus Day We write on Columbus Day, a holiday that was first celebrated in the United States as far back as 1792, but which became a national holiday only in the late 19th century. It's a proud day for Italian-Americans, of course, but it also offers an opportunity for all Americans to celebrate both the daring do of an intrepid explorer and an event that started the ball rolling toward the creation of the world's most prosperous bastion of ordered liberty. That, anyway, is the story we were brought up on. Today, Columbus, like all things celebrating America, has been enrolled in what the late Roger Scruton identified as the left's culture of repudiation. The curious, even hypocritical nature of this repudiation is especially patent in the most privileged and affluent precincts of our culture, in the Ivy League writ large, all those institutions that, once upon a time, were devoted to perpetuating our civilization, but which now, marinated in too much money, spend their time in seemingly bottomless animus deploring everything about America and the civilization that fed it. Consider, to take just one example, the long, graphics-filled story printed on October 11th in the Washington Post. Columbus monuments are coming down, the Post cheered, but he's still honored in 6,000 places across the U.S. Here's where. It begins with this tableau, With one quick tug, a 14-foot-tall Carrera marble statue of Christopher Columbus fell, shattering into pieces. The crowd of more than a hundred gathered in Baltimore's Little Italy neighborhood erupted in celebration. End quote. Isn't it wonderful? Destruction of public property and the kicking of America, all in one fun-filled afternoon. There follow paeans to St. George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement and sympathetic quotations from Indian activists. Quoth one, we tell our kids the truth. We tell them that Columbus was a bad guy. There are also maps full of little dots and directions for the instruction of aspiring vandals. The message is clear. Here is where the statues Honoring Columbus, our kids, come and get him. Isn't there something about incitement in the statute books? Anti-Columbus activism is not new. More than 25 years ago, the historian Keith Windshuttle provided a precy of the genre in The Killing of History, How Literary Critics and Social Theorists Are Murdering Our Past. Quoting various anti-Columbus and anti-American academics, Kirkpatrick Sale, Svetln, Todorov, et al., Windshuttle shows how one-sided is the campaign against early European colonizers of the Americas. The left excoriates Columbus, Hernan Cortez, and other Europeans for their savagery while completely ignoring the unspeakable barbarism with the natives they encountered. Taking that on board, Winchuttle notes would have made their, quote, moral outrage appear ludicrous. At the end of the day, however, the natives function as little more than props for the writers and activists. The real focus of their energy is against America and the European civilization it embodies. Quote, the interest of these writers in the events of 1492, Winchuttle writes, derives only in small part from any real sympathy they might have for the natives, and far more from their fervor to adopt a politically correct stance against their own society. End quote. Ironically, Winchuttle continues, they themselves bear all the characteristics of the Eurocentrism they condemn in Columbus cortez and other targets which is to say repudiating columbus is merely a pretext for a larger repudiation of the culture that supports and flatters them it is as disingenuous as it is repulsive but it seems quite clear that the attacks will not end until their plump sources of support begin to be loaded onto the hecatombs of their juvenile and malicious fury education apocalypse now speaking of juvenile and malicious fury we were browsing the invaluable online aggregator instapundent recently and came across a public service bulletin filed under the rubric higher education apocalypse a frequent feature at that site It turns out that the Art Institute of Chicago has decided to fire all 122 of its unpaid docents. Why? Because being mostly middle-class white women, they are not sufficiently diverse. Now, the Art Institute houses one of the finest collections in the country, indeed, in the world. In the breadth and depth of its holdings, it occupies a place in that top circle of institutions, populated by the Metropolitan in New York, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., and only a tiny handful of other museums. Beyond that, it maintains, that is, it maintained, one of the most rigorous docent programs anywhere. The volunteers act as greeters and guides to the collection. Unlike docents at many museums, Those at the Art Institute actually know, again, insert preterite here, what they are talking about. As the article linked by Instapundit notes, docents there underwent two training sessions per week for 18 months, and then, according to the docents, five years of continual research and writing to meet the criteria of 13 museum content areas. On top of that, there's monthly and bi-weekly training on new exhibits. Dustins gave up to two one-hour tours a day for 18 weeks of the year. Their average length of service was 15 years. They did it because they love the art. Did we mention that they did it for free? That's all over now. In late September, the museum cashiered them all. Quote, more than 1,200 years of work put into the current docents, we read, and all that expertise gone in an instant. In recompense, the AIC offered their former benefactors free two-year passes to the museum. Really, you can't make it up. Going forward, the museum plans to hire a smaller group of docents that will skip the rigorous training and be paid $25 per hour. As the article dryly notes, the new docents, quote, will surely meet the envisioned diversity goals. The question is, what goals will they fail to meet? We know the answer to that, although we're not supposed to say. They will fail spectacularly to meet the goal of effectively educating the public for which the museum ostensibly exists. The article, published at a website called Why Evolution is True, asks some interesting questions. Does the Art Institute need to diversify? Is it an experiment in sociological consciousness raising, or an educational institution dedicated to the preservation and elucidation of works of art? The writer of this article acknowledges that surely, quote, some minority docents might have different points of view about art, end quote. But he wonders, quote, what the reaction would be if all the docents were black or Hispanic and they hired whites to get a white point of view. Yet another question to which you know the answer. Moreover, the writer goes on to point out, the Art Institute did try to diversify their pool of docents, but failed. Surely, quote, it would look better to have a diverse group of docents but they just could not find appropriate ones. We agree with the writer. Replacing the long-serving, unpaid, and qualified docents with a paid group of people whose primary qualification is their skin color is not only insulting to everyone involved, but it is also, quote, a bad move for the museum's reputation and especially for the education of those who go to the AIC. There will have to be many fewer tours with a much less well trained group of guides. End quote. Incidentally, Instapundent notes that this story came quote, courtesy of a reader who doesn't use Facebook much but decided to try and share this story, only to have sharing squashed. What is happening at the Art Institute of Chicago is only the tip of the education apocalypse iceberg, of course. In New York, to take just one other example, the outgoing mayor, Bill de Blasio, just announced that he is phasing out all school programs for gifted and talented students and replacing them with a new diversity program called Brilliant NYC. Yes, really. The trouble is, you see, that Asian and white students are overrepresented in the current programs. Or, to put it more accurately, there are not enough blacks and Hispanics in them. Hence, as the New York Times wrote, they are, quote, a glaring symbol of segregation in New York City public schools, end quote. The question is, as one critic of the initiative had it, Quote, how is putting kids out of gifted and talented programs going to solve racial segregation? It won't. De Blasio's ham-handed attack on quality reminds us that a critical part of the left liberal agenda is punishing those who succeed. De Blasio will be gone before his parting gift to the city can be implemented It will be left to his successor, probably Eric Adams, to carry out the plan. Will he? He has said he is in favor of expanding such programs, not replacing them. But we will see. We'd say that you cannot make it up, but then you don't have to. This surreal attack on merit is actually happening. Fear George W. Bush once observed that, quote, the desire for freedom resides in every human heart, end quote. That sure sounds nice. Is it true? We think the jury is still out on that. At the very least, we'd suggest that there are other, less noble-sounding desires competing for a place. One of these desires is for servitude and conformity. In The Spirit of the Laws, Montesquieu said that, quote, government should be set up so that no man need be afraid of another. Montesquieu, together with John Locke, was one of the most important influences on the political philosophy of the Founding Fathers. But we've come a long way since Madison and Hamilton limbed the ideals of a limited government of enumerated powers that put a premium On individual liberty. The American-born English novelist Lionel Shriver helped measure the distance traveled in an essay for City Journal on the progress of COVID hysteria in squelching freedom, not just in the actions of an overbearing state, but also, and perhaps more crucially, in the growing habit of subservience in the population at large. Shriver focuses on the situation in Britain, but what she says has equal pertinence to what is unfolding in the United States and elsewhere. A good 27% of Britons, she reports, quote, want to impose a government-mandated nationwide curfew of 10 p.m. until the pandemic was under control worldwide, which might be years from now, end quote. More sobering, nearly 20%, would impose such a curfew permanently, regardless of the risk of COVID. Even more extraordinary, 64% want Britain to mandate masks in shops and on public transport for the duration of the pandemic, while, quote, an astounding 51% want to be masked by law forever. What these depressing numbers tell us, Shriver rightly observes, is that, quote, far from yearning for their historic liberties as free-born Englishmen, some 8 out of 10 Britons are anxious about lifting any of their government's copious pandemic restrictions. Many even appear in love with the state of captivity itself. The same, alas, goes for a sizable part of the American population. Madison and Hamilton and the other founding fathers labored mightily to produce a form of government that supported liberty. But what if we, the people, decide that liberty is too scary, too difficult, too troublesome to maintain? What then? This is Roger Kimball signing off for The New Criterion. I look forward to speaking with you next month.